What's behind the ugly anti-Semitism on campuses and elsewhere that surged up after the Hamas attack on Israel in October 2023? The viciousness against Jews took a lot of people by surprise, but it didn't surprise the author of a new book on American anti-Semitism, as we will learn today. Hello, everyone. I'm Graham Walker, coming to you from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, welcoming you to today's episode of Independent Conversations. I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague here at the Independent Institute, Dr. Philip Magnus, holder of the David J. Thoreau Chair in Political Economy, who is no stranger to our audience. Welcome, Phil. Thanks for having me here. Great to see you. But our featured guest today is Dr. Benjamin Ginsburg, author of our recently released book titled The New American Antisemitism, The Left, the Right, and the Jews. Welcome, Dr. Ginsburg. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Graham and Phil. It's good to see you. Wonderful to have you. This is a, an important topic, and I'm happy to speak on it at enormous length, if necessary. <laughs> yeah, well... Let me just point out uh, for the benefit of our audience that uh, Benjamin Ginsburg is a research fellow here at the Independent Institute and a professor at Johns Hopkins University, where he holds the David Bernstein Chair in Political Science. He also chairs the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies at the university, and he has authored or co-authored dozens of books, including What Washington Gets Wrong, a book called The Fatal Embrace, Jews and the State, and the widely used college textbook, We the People. In fact, I bet a lot of our audience has used We the People in their college classrooms when they were studying political science. I know I did some years back. I won't say how many years. (laughs) But none of those books, I think, exceeds in importance this this one, just published, The New American Antisemitism, The Left, the Right, and the Jews by Benjamin Ginsburg. Uh, This is a pretty important work and a lot more timely than any of us would have wished. So let me just begin with just asking you the the simplest of all questions, uh, Ben Ginsburg. Um, the book is called The New American Antisemitism. So what's new about antisemitism? It seems like it's a perennial, it seems like antisemitism is a perennial evil. Yeah, so what is new about it? Yeah, unfortunately, it is a perennial evil. Um, what's new, and this is especially true in the United States, is that we, we tend to regard antisemitism as associated with forces of the political right, neo-Nazis, what have you. But in the past, um, I would say, 50 or so years, anti-Semitism has become more and more prevalent on the political left. And in the book, I trace this back to a particular event, and that is the 1967 Israel-Arab War. Um, you know, Muslims thing call the uh, for foundation of Israel the Nasbar, the tragedy, uh, but the actual, uh, the actually significant event in more recent years was the '67 war. You know, Graham and Phil, as you know, um, before 1967, Israel was a small socialist state. Uh, people didn't pay that much attention to it, except that left-wing politicians like to be like to visit it to have their photos taken next to tractors. I think there's a wonderful photo of a young Bernie Sanders sitting on a tractor. Now, I don't know if he knew how to drive the tractor or do what the tractor did, but there he was uh, showing that he uh, was attuned to, sympathetic to, sympathetic to ordinary working people. Not only working people, but people on kibbutzes. Commun- people right. on kibbutzes, right. Right. Yeah. right. So, 
So for politicians, for, for socialists and other left-wing politicians of that era, Israel was a, was a good place to visit. It showed their socialist credentials, uh, and everyone was happy. They could all sing Kumbaya around the tractor. Uh, <laughs> but in 67, this changed because that year, um, a war was fought between Israel on the one hand and Egypt, Syria, Jordan, much of the Arab world. And shockingly, Israel was victorious. People called it the Six-Day War. Uh, in about a week, Israel had defeated all of its um, uh, Arab neighbors. Um, now, as a result of this victory, the United States took stock um, of its own relationships in the Middle East. Now, you know, for the United States, especially at that time, Middle Eastern politics, its view of the Middle East, was driven by a three-letter word. And that word was not Jew. It was oil. Uh, our policy in the Middle East um, was focused around maintaining privileged access to Middle Eastern oil fields. Now, that's still true today, although uh, if we would, if our government would allow us to do so, we would produce all the energy that we could possibly need. Uh, but nevertheless, at that time, we relied upon Saudi crude uh, and upon uh, well from the Gulf states. So um, the United States suddenly saw Israel as a potentially useful ally in in our efforts to um, maintain uh, uh, the security of the uh, Middle Eastern oil fields. And after 67, the United States began to arm Israel, supplanting France and uh, the Soviet bloc. Remember, there used to be something called the Soviet Union. I think it's coming back, but it uh, uh, doesn't exist anymore. So we, we supplanted other um, armed suppliers and threw Israel into the, um, or into the American security apparatus. Israel became an important ally, and that was the great sin as far as, uh, as American progressives were concerned. Israel uh, had allied itself with the United States um, and was no longer a tiny little socialist state. Um, so Israel had become, no, nobody had invented this term yet, the Iranians invented it later, Israel had become the little Satan uh, linked to the great Satan, which was the United States. Um, so uh, I, I understand that with regard to the Muslim world, but the American or European left, you're telling us, um, also became anti-Israel, anti-Jewish at that point. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, in uh, Europe, the process was much was much more uh, rapid. Uh, because Europe began a few years later uh, to see large um, influxes of Muslim immigrants. The parties of the European left saw these Muslim immigrants uh, as potential left-wing voters. Uh, there was a problem, though. Uh, right. The Muslim immigrants weren't much interested in Karl Marx. They had not read Marx. Uh, they weren't interested in the sort of the labor versus capital struggles that the European left emphasized. And moreover, when it came to matters that the European left took seriously, the status of women uh, in particular, um, 
Muslims, uh, you know, totally disagreed with the politics of the left. Right. So uh, the European leftists searched around for something that could link them to these potential new um, uh, left-wing voters, and they found, without too much trouble, Israel. That was something they could agree upon. Israel had committed this great sin of aligning itself with the Americans, and moreover, uh, the Muslim immigrants hated Israel, so it was a marriage made maybe in heaven, someplace, anyway. Um, <laughs> maybe the other uh, place. The other yeah, place. other place. <laughs> That's right. So, so the European parties of the left uh, began to be anti-Israel, and it didn't take long before American um, liberal left and progressive politicians also, first of all, they copy whatever, whatever the European left does, American left-wingers copy, Right. Uh, Especially they're not very era. inventive. They're kind of best practices people, and uh, <laughs> they mm -hmm. tend to copy what their what their thought leaders in Europe uh, uh, develop. Uh, but the same, you know, gradually the same kind of um, uh, arithmetic began to appeal to them as well. Um, now this explains anti-Zionism, right? Not anti. Yeah. Everyone says, "Oh, anti-Zionism isn't the same as anti-Semitism," uh, but the the truth is that it, it's pretty much the same. Um, first of all, if you are running around screaming about Israel, if Israel is your great enemy in the world, that's a little peculiar, isn't it? This is a world that contains it's a North strange Korea, obsession. Iran. Uh, I mean, I could. I could rattle off 20 countries that, uh, on, on the face of it, are much worse places than Israel. Uh, I'd like right. to form an right. anti-North Korean party. And if anyone wants to join, I would be, I'd be happy to organize it. Um, so that's the first question. Why, why focus on Israel? And often the answer is that that's a polite way of expressing a little bit of antagonism toward Jews that you had to begin with. Right. Um, Moreover, if you become involved in political struggles against Israel, if you're anti-Zionist, your major enemies are going to be Jews. Um, and in you know, we tend to dislike those uh, with whom we uh, uh, engage in political conflict. Nowadays, Democrats and Republicans aren't on speaking terms. Look, so um, those two things help to explain that in the real world. In the real world, as opposed to the philosophical world, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are pretty much the same. They're they're closely linked. Um, yeah, you, and because Israel is, is designed to be a Jewish state, homeland for the Jewish people, and so it's hard for it not to be linked. I would just right. want to ask you to comment on one thing here while we're on this point. Um, I at one time imagined I was trying to think of a. Uh, an explanation for the linkage between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism that I observed in so many academics that I knew that I have known, uh, and and it, sometimes it seemed like the idea was that well they were anti-Zionist just because they they felt there shouldn't be such a thing as a religiously based state there shouldn't be a Christian state there shouldn't be a Muslim state there shouldn't be a Jewish state separation of religion and state but then I noticed that so many of the anti-Zionists were just fine with Muslim states. They're uh, they just yeah. didn't want a Jewish state, right? I mean, they they on the left they dismiss Israel as a, a quote ethno state, unquote. But there are an awful lot of those. 
I don't see that many people. Well, they're mostly. <laughs> mostly. I don't yep. see many people railing against Ireland, uh, which is pretty much, uh, until recent years at least, has been an ethno state. Uh, the um, Muslim states of the Middle East are ethno states. Um, ethno religious. Ethno religious states. Ethno religious, exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, de declaring that Israel is an ethno state doesn't distinguish it from very many others. Um, you know, we crazy Americans, we think that all sorts of different people can join together and form a state on the basis of common beliefs. Used to be. Um, but in most of the world, the ethnostate is the norm. Um, but it, it, you know, and when it comes down to it, I mean, if you've been to Israel, though it's true that Israel styles itself as a Jewish state, it's full of other sorts of people too. Uh, I mean, a big chunk of the population is Muslim. Then among its most loyal uh, citizens are Druze, whose religion is sort of a secret. Nobody quite knows exactly what, <laughs> what they practice, but Muslims hate them and they get along with, with Jews, so I guess it's all right. Uh, there are plenty of Christians in Israel. Mm -hmm. Every evangelical church in the South has a baptismal site on the Jordan River. <laughs> right. um, so, and there, as we, as people discovered during the recent uh, special election, which unfortunately was lost by uh, the Republican candidate, uh, who was a uh, a, a um, Jew from an Orthodox Jew from Israel, but also Ethiopian, and her husband right, he, was noticed, Ukrainian. Right. Yeah. So mm -hmm. she she was. Um, you know, someone who would be fairly common in Israel, she just kind of seemed odd in the United States. So, uh, the, so, so uh, Ben, uh, regarding yeah. Israeli citizenship, just briefly on this point, um, there are indeed Muslim citizens of Israel, Christian yep. citizens of Israel, Jewish yep. citizens of Israel, many Arab citizens of Israel. And if I'm not mistaken, it seems to me, looking from my vantage point, that Muslim citizens of Israel have a lot more protection for their individual freedom rights than Muslim citizens of most Muslim Israel. states. Oh, to say the least. You know, one of the most bizarre things that I saw while watching various demonstrations was a group calling itself Queers for Palestine. And they seemed oblivious yep. to the fact that in Palestine, or for that matter, in almost any Muslim country, uh, they could very well find themselves certainly incarcerated, but but they they might be killed. The death penalty, right? Yeah, right. So so why why did they support Palestine? And um, some news person stopped one and said, "Excuse me, why are you for Palestine? Don't you know how they would treat you there?" And he said, "Oh no, that's a lie. I don't believe it." Oof. Well, wow. come on, you know, don't don't use political blinders uh, when your life might be at stake if you actually took your views seriously. Yeah. Right. So anyway, getting back to your question, um, anti-Zionism became a force on the political left, uh, beginning in the late 60s and then accelerating uh, in recent years. So uh, when I started writing this book, I felt comfortable saying that anti-Semitism anti was coming to be more important on the uh, left than on the right. On the right, the committed anti-Semites are a small group, uh, half of whom are imprisoned at any given time. Right. Uh, small and despised and rightly despised. Yes, right. Uh, they, it's, um, Society does not... Literally the lunatic fringe. 
Whereas yeah. on the left, you have a very uh, respectable people. Now, I don't right. know if college professors count as respectable, but if they <laughs> if they do, you have college professors um, and uh, important politicians. They're not respectable, I guess. So you, but you have notable people. I shouldn't have used notable, the word right, respectable. Right. Notable people who profess views that um, uh, are uh, meant to be anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic. So I began to write this book uh, fully confident that, that this was true. Uh, but yeah. the full extent of this shocked me uh, after uh, October 7th when... Uh, Sure, President Biden, to his credit, uh, supported Israel, but but within the Democratic Party, within the Democratic Party, views were, shall we say, mixed. And yeah. I don't I don't mean only the uh, the members of the squad, uh, but perfectly. I'm not going to say respectable this time. Perfectly notable, notable. Democrats um, were. Um, uh, not at all hesitant to question uh, the need for Israel's response. Uh, this I found bizarre. Uh, you know, Israel was attacked. Fifteen hundred of its citizens were brutalized and killed. And uh, the question is, should it respond? Is this morally right? Well, that's what governments are for, isn't it? To keep their citizens from being brutalized and killed. Uh, Israel would have been behaving outrageously if it hadn't responded. And everyone points to the, the rules of war, which call for proportionality, uh, but that's only one element of, of the law of war. Here we're talking about a group which melted into the civilian population and had to be rooted out. Um, and that's what the Israelis have been doing. And it's not a pretty thing. You know the the outrageous the outrageous conduct and rhetoric of the American and European left is beyond any you know, real comprehension, and to a substantial extent, you see this within the Democratic Party, not right, among, right. not merely among the uh, the squad members, but among rank and file Democrats who um, will vote, uh, you know, against Israel vote, if, refrain from condemning Hamas, and showing their true colors on this matter. Sure. And then we, there are the universities. Gonna... Phil, do you exactly. want to comment on that part of it, Philip? <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, uh, you know, what's going on in college campuses? We've seen, uh, I think, something that's been shocking to most Americans that are sitting there watching on TV. We all saw that congressional hearing with Claudine Gay and the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn uh, basically were asked point blank to condemn uh this rhetoric that uh, we had seen on college campuses basically calling for genocidal tendencies, and they wouldn't do so. They sat there and they equivocated, and yeah. they, in some ways, doubled down. Oh, uh, yeah, this was shocking. This was like a wake-up moment. Yeah. Well, this was the, uh, I like to call it the testimony of the three stooges. Um, but, but, fair enough. <laughs> but but they are uh, not the only ones. Well, I think there there are two phenomena at work here. That it's a con. Where what we saw was a confluence of two phenomena uh, that also can be traced back several decades. One phenomenon is the uh, dumbing down of university administrations. 
Uh, and one, and you written about administrators yeah, read quite about a bit the, too. So, right in my book, the fall of the faculty. Um, and one of the points I made there was that over the past um, thirty years, um, the faculty has been subordinated to uh, administrators, and these administrators often are not the best and brightest. Uh, They are not recruited from the upper ranks of the faculty. Uh, They tend to be people who um, either didn't make it or, you know, never, never really tried. And plagiarize um, their dissertations. Right. Right. They plagiarize their dissertations. We might discover this. Never occurred to me to plagiarize my dissertation. It would have been easier. It would have been faster. But... um, I, ca- I counsel them to plagiarize their strategic plans uh, right. because all their strategic plans are the same. They might as oh, well plagiarize the them and save yeah. money. But, so maybe but administration anyway, rewards that. Right. So uh, we began recruiting administrators who were not the best and the brightest. You know, at one time, uh, university presidents tended to be people who had um, acquitted themselves well as academics. And now, uh, toward the end of their careers, when you know, they weren't working in their laboratories anymore. This was seen as a service to give back what, what they had received. You know, I remember when I was a student at the University of Chicago, uh, one president was a Nobel Prize winning geneticist. Right. One president uh, was uh, one of the nation's foremost constitutional lawyers. Uh, and this was considered appropriate. But that's rare now because these folks are said not to have administrative experience. So the headhunting firms that are in charge of uh, the the academic administrative job market wouldn't consider them as possible candidates. Now, I would suggest that administrative experience can be uh, achieved in about a week or two, but but maybe I, maybe I exaggerate. I give it three weeks um, for any for an intelligent person, but sure. the, sure. for but um, faculty from the uh, top of their professions generally are not experienced. Now, again, uh, there, there are exceptions. There are university presidents who are very, very smart, um, and that's wonderful when you get one. But on the whole, it's a bunch of dullards, as we saw. Uh, so you have presidents um, who aren't, you know, can't think their way out of a wet paper bag, and have no moral moral compass whatsoever. Now that's that's step one. The other thing that happened was that um, on many campuses, uh, groups advocating for a free Palestine, advocating against Israel. Often these were Muslim groups, like Students for Justice in Palestine, which is very sure. important in these matters. SJP organized on campus after campus, and on every campus they joined um, in coalitions with other progressive groups. Now, progressives call this intersectionality. Didn't we call this log rolling at one time? <laughs> right. I'll support your cause if you'll support mine. But I guess log right. rolling isn't a fancy enough term. So they call it intersectionality. And these intersectional coalitions will include all progressive forces, even when the um, relationship between the between one or more of these forces 
should be strained, and again, I mentioned queers for Palestine, uh, should not be part of a coalition uh, advocating uh, for a free Palestine, if you ask me. But anyway, um, these intersectional coalitions on the left are very active on many college campuses, particularly elite campuses, and they um, strike terror into the hearts of administrators because there is no campus right. There are very few conservative faculty, and conservative students have learned to be quiet. So there right. is a, a campus left, and when the campus left starts agitating about a particular cause, administrators know that there's not much, not much to be gained by fighting them because you have no allies. So generally, administrators will give them what they want. Yeah. So yeah. you don't want that, that conservative speaker? Well, that speaker would uh, you know, make this campus no longer a safe space, as opposed to that progressive speaker who has the protection of the First Amendment. Yeah. So cool. um, when I was watching the, the testimony, uh, I could see their little wheels spinning. They reflexively, reflexively, um, you know, will uh, refuse to say anything bad about anyone on the left because that's the First Amendment. Uh, and that, that, is, that is what they do. They've, they've been trained to do this. Um, but, but it's only for the political left. So only for the political they, left. They, they'll say I, what know, depends on the context for the left. Context, they would right, be, the, come down like a hammer on anyone on the right, right that and says- this is a, you know, I'm you glad know. you caught this, Phil, because this is exactly what context means to them. Context means it depends which side is saying it. Right. Okay? If it's being spouted by the left- then it's okay. If it's being spouted by the right, that's a bad context, and that has to be banned. It's exactly what they mean by context. That's their buzzword for ideology. Now, they even the Three Stooges knew that they couldn't say it depends on the ideology of the speaker. So, so they have a term for it, context. So is genocide a bad thing? Well, it depends who's calling for it. If the right was calling for it, oh, that would be evil. The last hour, we have to we have to give them their constitutional rights. So it's it's this um, confluence of two factors. Confluence of two factors. It's the dumbing down of campus administrators, coupled with um, the um, monopolistic, hegemonic, I guess they would say, politics yeah, of the left on most campuses. Um, you know, on, on the typical campus, the left is organized, uh, the right doesn't exist, and the middle just wants to go to school and, and, and not have stay quiet. bother them. So <laughs> exactly. that, that is the politics of the campus. Um, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, on my, uh, at Johns Hopkins University, College of Arts and Sciences, I suspect that when I retire, I'll be be the last Republican standing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, every, you yeah. know, as we say, ev every form of diversity except one. So there is something I would like to see if I could get the two of you to talk a little bit about, maybe less me, but the, the issue in my mind is this. What should the universities do in these cases? Like some people seem to say, uh, well, 
uh, yeah, they can call for genocide of Jews, uh, but let's make sure that everybody's calling for genocide of African-Americans too, and then that'll be equal and fair. And that doesn't seem like the right answer. What, what should universities do between the two of you? What do you think? Well, uh, and there's the, the further question. Uh, we're already seeing things like the donor revolts. When they saw this testimony in front of Congress, people that have been giving million-dollar gifts to Harvard and uh, MIT and Penn uh, have suddenly pulled their checks. Uh, so it might be something that's coming out that's forcing uh, a university response just on the financial side. Uh, added to that, the taxpayers, do they turn off the spigot uh, to what's essentially subsidizing ideological activism? Yeah, I, I agree with this. And I, I was among those who uh, all my life felt that the university should be guarded against external interference. I no right. longer think that way. Right. Uh, right. I think I think the university that universities have screwed up. Um, they're no longer capable of governing themselves. Uh, we saw in the testimony of the three Stooges, uh, campus government, uh, self-government, as it is today. And I think it's time that um, other forces play a role in uh, in the university. I would include uh, alumni and donors. Now, you know, when I was a young professor, I knew a lot of our alumni and donors because when they would come to campus once or twice a year, uh, we would have sessions in which they met the faculty and I would give a talk to to the alumni, talk to donors. Uh, This was considered very appropriate and they enjoyed it, I think. Uh, But that never happens today because university administrators like to uh, maintain a Potemkin village. They yes, don't want yeah. the trustees. They don't want the alumni. They don't want the donors to know what is actually going on on the campus. They want them to read the glossy brochure. Now, if you've picked up any of the glossy brochures that these schools send out, they're filled with lies. Um, I remember one time I had, I teach a course on university and society. So I had the students look at some of the literature that that my university produced. And one student said, well, you know, all these pictures, they're not taken on our campus. Uh, (laughs) This had been contracted out. So apparently it was the the pictures were taken on a beautiful campus. Right. So this is what the the trustees and the alumni and the donors are shown. Um, So I would say that the trustees have it in their power to exercise more control over the university, yeah. uh, you know, in the for-profit world, they would have to, because yes. under Sarbanes-Oxley, mm-hmm. they have a fiduciary responsibility. But in the not-for-profit world, that's not so. Um, but there's there's no reason why trustees yeah. uh, can't exercise more control over the university. Uh, donors should look very carefully before writing their checks. You know, you have people who would spend months looking at an investment before doing anything with it, uh, who will write a check to alma mater without giving any thought to it. Are they going to do what they say? No. Are they, uh, what are they going to do with my money? Not what you think. So um, I, I would urge uh, trustee, trustees and donors and alumni. Uh, now, my son is a Harvard alumnus, and he and all his friends 
wrote checks for one dollar this year. Wow. Uh, and <laughs> Sign I think, a protest, sir. Yeah, I think one dollar is better than nothing. Because <laughs> yep. let the uh, let the alumni office try to uh, figure out what this means. At any rate, um, so state legislatures too are remiss. Now I've, I've spoken at a lot of uh, schools, and the faculty of state schools complain that the administration tries very hard to keep them away from state legislatures. They don't want them to meet legislators. They don't want to talk them to talk to legislators. I said, well, you know, you can you can uh, obey that injunction if you want, but state legislators actually are interested in the school, especially if they're oh, yeah. alumni, uh, hold events where you bring them to campus. You, not the administration, they'll come and let them see what see actually happens happening. on your campus. So so if alumni and donors stepped up to the plate and appropriate legislatures and so forth, and if uh, leadership was put in place in these institutions that was uh, experienced, had expertise, and was intellectually astute, what should such good administrators do when a bunch of students and faculty call for the eradication of Jews from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea? What should well, they do? Well, that in their speech codes, they already have the appropriate penalties. Um, you know, this is grounds for uh, for suspension and possible expulsion, just as would be the case if a group of students ran around uh, calling for the uh, you know. Uh, elimination of black students. I mean, the rules right. are there. Um, and um, I know that administrators who have had trouble um, getting to uh, Title I of any act could probably haven't found Title VI of the Higher Education Act, uh, but the higher Title VI seems to require them um, to protect students covered by that act, and that includes Jews. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, I think the rules are there, but there's no will to enforce them. Yeah. I mean, I noticed when when um, MIT discovered that a lot of the students, um, you know, chanting for the death of death to Zionists on the campus, were foreign students, who, had they been suspended or expelled, would have uh, lost their visa. They lose their visa, yeah. yeah uh, they right. said, "Oh my God, right, we can't do that. Right. They lose their visas." Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, well, okay, well, they would lose their the visas. <laughs> And I think it's important to point out that the, primarily the institutions we're talking about are private institutions. We're not talking yes, about yes. government agencies uh, penalizing people for saying stuff. We're talking about private organizations, private associations that can have their own rules of civility. They have their own rules. Absolutely, Graham. They have their own rules. The rules are well known and posted. Every Students all have to read them. They attend little seminars about these rules. So these, these rules can be enforced. Um, and look, it's true that these are these are private entities, but it's important to point out that they are taxpayer supported, um, because under the you know it's because of tax law that they're so rich. You know, every nonprofit is required uh, to spend the money it takes in in contributions and what have you on the nominal cause that they are promoting. 90% has to be spent. But there's one category of institution that's exempt for that, from this. It's the university. Universities are allowed to save up. And that's why they have these huge endowments. Uh, people have been giving them money, and instead of spending it on educating kids, 
at a lower at a low cost, they save the money. At least that part of the money they don't spend on hedge it. fund with the university attached. Yeah. So um, I, I, if I remember correctly, Adam Smith actually saw the beginnings of this. Yes, sir. And he said a university begins to go downhill when it builds an endowment. Interesting. When he visited Oxford. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it, when was that? Adam Smith was never wrong, so I assume that, that he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> um, because, you know, when they have a huge endowment, this cushions them against uh, disgruntled donors. Now, yeah. it's true that they are... Um, in their accounting system, they're dependent. I think 12% of revenue at Harvard or a school like that will come from annual donations. And that's good money because the money in the, in the endowment, the income from the endowment is earmarked. So the, the right, money that right. comes in donations is, um, is, flexibility. Uh, yeah, is, is, can be spent. But uh, nevertheless, they can survive years of donor anger on their, uh, on their endowments. Well, ben, right, right. A, a bit of um, like, devil's advocate here. Um, so some people might say, well, precisely because there is governmental support, uh, even for private universities, the, uh, these private universities should therefore have a complete free forum of speech without any civility rules at all, because that's the First Amendment. And if they're getting government money, they're under the First Amendment. So uh, let it be a free for all of everybody calling to everyone's death. <laughs> well, for us libertarians, that is that is uh, appealing. Um, yeah, so what's the proper answer to that? Though? Yeah, the proper answer is that if they do that, the line between speech and action begins to disappear. Um, the university is a forum where all ideas uh, should be discussed, but they should be discussed uh, in a civil manner. I think that's, that's the university's, yeah. um, that should be the university's position. The university should endeavor to maintain civility so that um, speech doesn't quickly degenerate into uh, combat. Remember, you're talking here about, I mean, I hate to call them this, but they're little kids. And um, sure. they need, uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe in, in this idea that, you know, you, you let them out in the world and all ideas flourish. Uh, they don't know that much. And part of the uh, function of the university is to teach them how that is best done in a more civil setting, I believe. Well, um, we're, we're seeing the fruits of ignorance in many of these activists. Like, uh, some of the ones that they interview on the street, they don't even know that the attacks from Hamas happened, or they have all these conspiracy theories. They say it's a hoax, or they don't know the, the reality on the ground, uh, like, like you mentioned on the Queers for Palestine example. Well, uh, you, they have strong opinions. <laughs> you are you are totally right. Um, we live in what some have called a post-truth society. Yes. Um, truth is determined by our feelings. Uh, I have my truth. Is that what Claudine Gay said? I have my truth, no your truth. Um, <laughs> and, you know, this this troubles me greatly because this is what they learn in, in, our, in the American school system. Uh, I'm writing about this now, and I, as I learned more about it, I was shocked. Um, you know, I thought, now you, all of you, both, both of you are old, not as old as I am, but old enough to remember this, that in school you begin with a base of facts and right. then you build up from there to a point where you know enough to engage in some sort of critical thinking. And in the 
pedagogical literature, this was something called Bloom's Pyramid. And it was had seven steps, started with fact, went up to critical thinking. Well, some years ago, progressive teachers felt that this Bloom's Pyramid thing, this, this was really uh, repressive because it suggested that not all children were ready for critical thinking. So they inverted the pyramid. So today they focus on critical thinking. Um, now, what do they think critically about if they don't know any facts? Uh, I guess it's easier to think critically if you're not hampered by facts. So you just um, make it up. You can make um, it up. Now, I've discovered, and you know, I teach at a school where it's very hard to get into the school. I think they take 5% of applicants at Hopkins. Kids are smart, but they don't know anything. Nobody ever taught them. So whatever topic we're talking about, I spend most of my time teaching history uh, because they never learned any. They engaged in critical thinking instead. No, now, they right. know yeah. that World War I came before World War II because they're numbered. Right. Which is very convenient. Very convenient. Yes. I once yes. asked them about the Spanish-American War. They didn't know what that was. Uh, and when we got to some of the, because it was relevant to a discussion of the Middle East, we talked about World War One, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, now, blank slate. Nobody had ever, they didn't know anything about that, but they were prepared to think critically about it. So um, the United States, I'm sure this won't shock you, but the United States... Uh, educational system is broken. Yes, it's broken. Yes. I picked up see the, the evidence. advanced placement textbook used in Montgomery County, Maryland, a wealthy suburb of Washington. And I learned in that history book that World War II in the Pacific was caused by the United States, in case you were wondering, <laughs> uh, in, in pretty much the same way that Israel caused the attack by Hamas. And I also learned that American capitalism was um, caused more hardship than Soviet or Chinese collectivization. Wow. Um, and the book so, so says- like They default to right. a very far left-wing position. Uh, the books, yeah, the book says that it's true that, and this is the word we used in the book, an amazing 20 million people died in China. Isn't it amazing? Amazing. Well, but this was largely the fault of bad weather. Ah, uh, yeah. Now here we have uh, Mao bragging about depends how depends on the context. Killed, it's a right? genocide. That... It's context. Exactly. It's context. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. It's context. So, um, you know, American college students um, who are prepared to take up the cause, the causes that we see them running around chanting about. Uh, are only partially to be blamed. They don't know anything. Right. And so many of them were never taught, for example, uh, the history around the British mandate going back to 1948, when in fact the land was divided at the close of the mandate uh, to Arabs and Muslims to the east of the river and to Jews to the west of the river. Uh, each, each side got its own portion, but the, somehow that's considered to be unfair. Uh, no, they never heard of this. Never right. heard of it. Uh, the Ottoman Empire also, I discovered they never heard of that. Well, they're anti-imperialist, except they like the Ottoman imp Ottoman imperialism <laughs> or, or the Soviet imperialism. Right, right. Well, so uh, I mean, it's just outrageous. And, and um, again, I don't, they're not to blame. 
we are because this yeah. is what mm-hmm. this is what they were this is how they were taught. Then, um, go ahead. Well, I, would, I was just going to uh, switch to one other kind of angle on the subject for a minute before we close up here. Um, you know, when you look at the Middle East, uh, it certainly is true, as I said a moment ago, that Israel as a political society has much higher level of protection to individual rights and liberties than any other state in the region. But not only that, um, Israel stands out as an oasis of prosperity in a region that otherwise seems to be grinding itself into poverty in many ways. Um, is that a picture of the trajectory of the uh, the experience of Jews writ large because they have been in various societies and have been uh, remarkably successful uh, and uh, you know, generating ideas and technology and creativity. Um, is there resentment against Israel because of its prosperity, the way there has been resentment against Jews historically in where they've been in diaspora in various countries? And is that behind well, some of this phenomenon? Well, that's that's certainly part of it, certainly part of it. But I, I like the way you frame the question. Uh, it's no accident that Israel uh, is also the the state where citizens enjoy the most liberty, and it's also the most prosperous. Those things go together. Hand liberty, in hand. democracy, prosperity, yeah. whether it's Jews or anyone else. Um, you know, that's another thing students don't understand. Nobody teaches them this, that, um, you know, prosperity does not result from by fiat declaring a $50 an hour minimum wage, right? <laughs> I heard one senatorial candidate uh, uh, arise from the state. Right. Um, and I, I heard uh, a member of Congress uh, saying that we should fund, you know, we should print paper and pay off our debt. Um, the Chinese are always afraid we're going to do that. But um, you know, prosperity, liberty, democracy, these are the American values that all go together. They go together in Israel and America and for a time in China, right? Liberalization That's right. That's right. and, and uh, prosperity went hand in hand. So uh, yeah, people are jealous of this, but not jealous enough to do it because the governments of the Middle East don't want to liberalize. They want to retain power with an iron hand. Right. They, under no circumstances, would liberalize their economies or societies because that would lead to their own downfall. Uh, and you know that may be one thing that that people resent about Israel, but it's also something that progressives resent about Jews in America. Sure. Uh, because all the things that progressives in America say about Israel. They're also thinking about America, right? They the are. Yeah. Are the canaries in the um, in the coal mine? When they say settler colonialism, they're not just it's thinking, a similar language. Yeah, they're thinking about the United States. Never mind that every square inch of territory on the face of the earth used to belong to somebody else. So settler colonialism doesn't distinguish anyone from anyone. But when they use that term. They're referring to those those wicked Zionists and to the Americans, um, you know. So uh, much of what they have to say about Israel, imperialism, well, they've adopted the the Iranian view of the world. There is the great Satan and the little Satan. So um, 
they what they resent about Israel, they also resent about the United States. It's just easier to say it about Israel. Yeah. Uh, we're going to come to a close here pretty quick, um, but Phil, Magnus, um, let me give you another shot at you know an angle or question you'd like to get in before we kind of come to an end. Yeah. So I'll, I guess, put the thing out on the table that's on my mind and on probably a lot of our uh, listeners' minds. Uh, you know, the universities have been front and center at both the rise of what we could call left-wing anti-Semitism, uh, but also the most visible displays of it. Uh, what are your predictions on what happens next? Uh, is this a moment where uh, the public is finally waking up to problems that seem to have been festering for a while on campus? Or uh, is this just going to be more of the same in a, in a long, drawn-out uh, grappling with the problems that we're seeing visibly right now? I hope the public is waking up. And, you know, as I said before, uh, both at public and private universities, um, people are not without tools. Donors, alumni, trustees uh, have the capacity to redirect the universe, public un pub private universities a bit. And state legislatures certainly have the capacity uh, to redirect uh, public schools. Um, I think that in all the discussion of diversity on campus, I favor diversity, but that would include intellectual diversity. Yes. <laughs> uh, why, why am I the only Republican and out of 450 faculty members? If there's another one, they, he or she is too timid to tell. They're hiding, uh, basically. You know, so- They um, want to keep their job. They want yep. to keep their jobs. Well, I- I guess I don't care anymore at my age, you know, you don't like me, I'll retire. But <laughs> but um I you know, we there used to be Ben Carson, but he was in the medical school. And I, right. I remember when Ben retired, he had been the sponsor of Hopkins Students for Life. Um because Ben uh, was vehemently anti abortion. Um and the head of Hopkins Students for Life came to me and said, Look, he said, I know you're not 100% in support of our cause. But uh, there's nobody else. Wow, I need somebody right. to sign for us to be a campus organization. So I did. But it, it was shocking to me that I was the only one. That's wow. just wrong. That's utterly outrageous. And it's mismatched am... with the public opinion in the United States. Yeah. You have a very, very one-sided faculty that is not and, serving. And if, you, if you ask anyone why that is, they say, it's because the left is smarter than the right. Well, I guess they were smarter. They took over the university. What can we say? But I do think that the work of Dr. Benjamin Ginsburg is going to push things back in the right direction. And if I people so. take, take your writing seriously, and if they get a copy of your book, The New American Anti-Semitism, The Left, the Right, and the Jews, um, we may be able to influence a tide of opinion to try and rescue a civility, intellectual diversity, and maybe education too, and maybe re-secure uh, the status of Jewish citizens here and elsewhere. Thank you for all the work you've done over the years on these topics. Thank you so much. Yes, yes, thank you. We are very thank grateful. You so much. We're delighted to have you, and we invite all of our friends who are watching us here and may join us in future to take a look at the book. It's available on Amazon, also on our website, independent.org, where you can follow up on this and other topics Thanks so much, Benjamin Ginsburg and Phil Magnus. Take care, everybody.